0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Thursday, July 3rd, 2008. I'm Elena Rangi. He's been called everything from a visionary to a lunatic, a futurist to the world's first real global thinker. Whatever the label, there's no question that Buckminster Fuller was one of the greatest innovators of the 20th century. Fuller is most famous for his giant geodesic dome, which dominated the American pavilion at Expo 67. You might also remember his Dymaxion car, a three-wheeled, 20-foot, 11-passenger vehicle that got 30 miles to the gallon. In 1933, Fuller spent his life dedicated to finding ways for humanity to become sustainable from using fewer world resources more efficiently to creating systems that would allow every person, regardless of where they lived, to have a respectable and sustainable standard of living. And as early as the 1920s, Fuller worried about the environmental issues that we're only beginning to realize today. Buckminster Fuller is the focus of a new exhibit at the Whitney Museum of American Art. This week, we'll take you to the exhibit, and you'll hear what made Fuller tick through the eyes of some of the people closest to him. And while you're listening, check out scienceandthecity.org podcast for some Bucky Multimedia. This podcast is brought to you by the Stanford University Libraries, sponsor of the Whitney's Buckminster Fuller exhibit and home to the permanent Buckminster Fuller archive. Through their innovative services and extensive collections, the Stanford Libraries support teaching, learning, and research at Stanford and beyond. We have with us today Dana Miller and Michael Hayes, co-curators of the exhibition, Um, I guess we're better suited to let them tell you all about about it, so I'll just leave it to you. So
1: welcome, and thank you for coming and joining Michael and me um, for Buckminster Fuller, Starting with the Universe. Um, I'm Dana Miller, so Associate go Curator at the Whitney Museum. Now is the perfect time to do a Buckminster Fuller exhibition. I mean, I think he's ripe for a reassessment. There have been, I think, several decades where he's sort of been regarded as maybe a pariah or sort of a an, a tangent to the architectural and engineering movements of the time. But I think that the ideas that he was concerned about from very early on, from the late 1920s, have become incredibly important today, and we realize that he was even more ahead of his time than we realize. So issues about Resource efficiency, global holistic thinking, doing more with less, the environment uh, ecological concerns that he raised are more important than they ever were.
2: I'm Michael Hayes, adjunct curator of architecture at the Whitney. There was a generation of architects in Fuller's own time, especially in the 60s and 70s, who not only if, – well, if they didn't disregard Fuller altogether, they were actually sort of aggressively against Fuller, mainly because architects deal with form and convention, and Fuller kind of refused to think about either form or convention. The architect Philip Johnson famously said, how do you put a door in a dome, That that the architectural problem was completely unresolved. But Fuller really didn't think about form or conventional or habitual ways of uh, making buildings. He thought of performance. He thought of how buildings use materials and resources, but also how those resources, after the building's life is complete, can be recycled. And he thought about these ecological issues as early as the 1920s, when other architects really, I mean, architects now have seized on this idea of the sustainability of their designs and constructions. But certainly Fuller had these ideas very early in his career, and the whole trajectory of his career sort of follows those.
3: I I think my first grand strategy of finding out how to use the world's resources so they will take care of everybody would come back then to how to take care of his living equipment. This brought me then to what I call the Dimexian Tower House, the 4D Tower House. And it was a ten-deck building, which is so light and so strong as finely engineered that it could be carried by the Grass Seppelin, which was about to be built at that time. And the pretty-
1: word Dymaxion was really more of a marketing term. It was coined actually by a marketing executive that worked for Marshall Fields. When Fuller was about to do his first presentation of his house, it was called the 4D House. And the story is... Something along the lines of the marketing executive said, you know, that's not going to play so well. And maybe you could think of something a little bit more um, seductive. (laughs) And he had heard Fuller lecture, I think, maybe at least once uh, on the house. And the words that he used, dynamic, maximum, and ion, he suggested combining in making the word dymaxion. And so Fuller used that to sort of brand his house. And beyond that, other inventions followed.
4: I am Jamie Snyder. I'm Buckminster Fuller's grandson. I'm co-founder of the Buckminster Fuller Institute. I'm a musician, a writer, and a producer-director of alternative media. He talked about a design revolution. The only way we are going to make it through the hurdles that are before us right now, and, and that were obvious to him 40 years ago, is, he felt, through developing new tools which allow us to do more with less and to use our resources ever more efficiently so we can actually take care of all of humanity in a way that's ecologically sustainable while phasing out fossil fuels, while phasing out atomic energy. Nature's
1: patterns and the geometries that he found in nature to create all of his ideas and designs, whether it be streamlining and aerodynamic design or working with the tetrahedron. And the tetrahedron is kind of the most uh, emblematic element of his... his
2: think uh, about four points in space, and space, space the, space and, space. and think about those points of being absolutely equal distant from one another. That arrangement forms a tetrahedron, which is the first, let's say, the simplest stable structural unit. It's Stable in the sense you can't move a, a tetrahedron. It, it'll take enormous weight. If you start multiplying tetrahedrons into a larger structure it can be a flat truss that can support an enormous amount of weight by virtue of many triangles or many tetrahedrons but it also naturally fuller thought would naturally actually approach a sphere because the sphere is the most efficient enclosure of of volume and so if you take a tetrahedron as a starting point and a sphere as the most efficient endpoint, that is a geodesic structure. And, it, and for him, it was both the simplest but also the most efficient enclosure in terms of its use of, you know, building materials and, and resources.
3: In this expo dome, we have a three-quarter sphere, so the walls start going away from you, and there's a very extraordinary psychological effect of this releasing you. Inside, suddenly realize that the walls really are not there. There is something that's keeping the rain away from you. It's like an umbrella above you. You don't feel shut in. Now that we know the principles in which we can cope with nature's most hostile actions of earthquakes, hurricanes, great Arctic snow loads, and now that we know how to get the best mathematics to get the most volume with the least. Next thing is, how do we produce the surfaces that will do this in the highest speed, in the most economical, effective manner?
4: He was very much of an explorer of the geometry, the design of nature. Whenever I was with him, I remember flying on an airplane with him, sitting next to him, I think on our way to Maine one summer, And if we had a free moment, he would always take out the little doily that was at the table and he'd be drawing all these little structures and all these different principles and teaching me about the way closest spheres, closest pack. And again, he felt that these basic principles of nature's design, they're very experiential. And he felt that young people, critically important, to reorient because a lot of the mathematics that we've been taught, the geometries that we still teach in schools, are very kind of obsolete. That is, they deal with two-dimensional surfaces. They don't. They're not really up to date with what we know about energy and patterns and structure and the way systems interface.
5: I'm Alighra Fuller Snyder, and I'm a Bucky's only child. I always say I'm worse than an only child because they lost their first child before I was born. I'm also a professor emeritus at UCLA in the field of dance ethnology and directed the World Arts and Cultures program there. He had a very powerful feeling about young people he felt that Child's mind was really the mind as the mind should be. It was a comprehensive thinker. It was the real explorer. So, his relationship and dialogue with me from before I can actually articulate it to you was extraordinary in his feeling that I could understand anything, really. He was a wonderful freehand artist, and he loved to tell. Stories. So, emerging from chickenpox or something or other, he was going to tell me this story of Goldilocks and the Three Bears, only I was Goldilocks. And what we were doing was to go an adventure into the universe. He used that believe it or not, to explain Einstein's theory of relativity to me. It was a very open and close relationship, which I assumed all children had to their parents, but I realise now it was a very wonderful one.
3: I've often said about friends of mine that I'm very, very fond of that have been brought up with, with money and, and wealth and really charming human beings and, and very loving and lovable, and yet they get drinking and be wasting and so forth, and I often say if they really could get... It, if they could get in enough trouble to really hit bottom, then they might really get somewhere. But it, it, is, it is pretty difficult to get enough trouble just, to, just to, to do that, or not just to stay in trouble
5: and so on. Yeah, right, I'll I'd tell you that. a story, <laughs> just a quick one. He was a, a moderately good social drinker right through the mid-40s, also a smoker. And one day, my mother and father's wedding anniversary was coming up, their 25th, and he said, I'm going to give and the present. I'm going to stop smoking and drinking. And he stopped that day forever and ever. Now, that's a disciplined human being. We did have an awful lot of food juices in the house for a few days. My
3: experience could be a value, man. So I said, there's only one condition for you not getting rid of you. As far as you for you goes, you've got to get rid of you for you. You can only... You can only, only entitled to say lies if you really commit yourself and all your experiences to uh, to other human beings in a very, very complex, complete out-and-out way. we ought to be saying, what do my experiences teach me needs to be done, which if not done will find world society in great trouble. My
2: favorite is a project he called Cloud Nine. Imagine an enormous geodesic sphere, miles in diameter, and he calculated that a sphere of that size the air inside, which would be slightly heated relative to the air outside, would be sufficient to actually float the sphere above the Earth's surface, and especially he thought it would go into colder climates where cities would occupy this geodesic sphere in climates otherwise impossible to inhabit. It produced some of Fuller's most enigmatic and and, and also beautiful images, but he didn't think of it as in images at all he referred to these cities as giant energy valves and by that he understood that resources energies information flows into these cities they produce waste that then has to go out back into the system and have to be absorbed by the system and i love this idea of a city as a giant energy valve in a in a cosmic ecology
3: what is now as clear as the speed of light itself is our realization that we've come to enough knowledge about how to do so much with so little, to understand enough about our great universe and man in the universe to realize his function is that of the mind, ability to bring great order. And we have the beautiful realization that Einstein's great conceptioning can go from weaponry to livingry, and it is now practical. metaphysical.
5: Since his sort of shift in focus to really do this work Changed the year that I was born. And I feel in many ways that the first 20 years of that life for both of us were sort of this emergence, even though a lot of interesting things happened for my father. To me, the real change came when he started working with students. His first teaching at the Institute of Design, Chicago, the famous summers at Black Mountain College. Up until then, I think Bucky had many friends, but in his own ideas, he was struggling by himself. When he began to work with students, they were all working in these things together. And the students, of course, responded enormously. The wave of Awareness of this this man who was so exciting, and, and, and the next uh, after Black Mountain, North Carolina, asked him to come. And then you know, and and it, to me, that was the change in his own life, and in the awareness of uh, his work. Really, was his work with, with the students ar- around the world.
6: My name is Thomas T.K. Zong. I'm an architect, and I started out with Bucky as a student, as many many of us did in 1952-1953 uh, at Virginia Tech. first time Terry Buckminster full was associated with the with, your with District Dome, because it was 1953. And, and because we were in architecture, we were in XYZ axis, everything was left to right, up and down, everything was a square, everything was planes, so when you saw this dome and these triangles, and uh, that, it just hit me. And I said, Boy, wait a minute, there's, there's got to be something there. It goes beyond the X, Y, Z axis. There's so something else is happening. And then when I started looking at it and I started thinking about the, the, a circle, the tetrahedron, which is the, the basis of it, and Bucky started explaining it and the circle. And I started saying and then st- and how it related to nature. So I said, wow, this got something there that I'm not getting. I've got to find out more about it. So I took a chemistry course you know, just to learn valence and chemistry. And I said, ah, now I'm starting to understand. He's really trying to expand the universe, expand the thinking, so the
2: architecture isn't just
6: a two- or three-dimensional model. Architecture really
2: goes into the universe. I think there's a a general contradiction in Fuller's life between the... The absolute belief in the individual, not only individual freedom, but individual creativity and issues of collective and groups. And in his case, a real tendency to always collaborate in his work. Fuller believed a lot in himself and he took a lot of credit himself for ideas that he was convinced were his and his alone, where, in fact, the archives show the ideas were very often Generated collectively in groups, in in collaboration. So I do think that Fuller was very much a a people who needed people, (laughs) a person who needed people. But I also think he was someone who really wanted his own individuality to show through, to almost be sovereign.
1: One of the interesting things about Fuller is that he was thinking on such a global level, thinking about all of humanity so early in the 1920s. I mean, we think about Today, we think on this level fairly easily and fluidly, but in the 20s, this was highly unusual. And then he really started thinking about the world and how to map the world in a more accurate way in the early 1940s when nationalism was really at its peak. So when the rest of the world was sort of in the midst of World War II, he was thinking, how can we more accurately show the entire Earth? How can we make a map projection that demonstrates that we're all really connected together in one large landmass?"
3: I call it the inventory of world resources, human trends and needs. It is my headquarters. So now I can see all the world at once, with, without any visible distortion of the relative shape, of the relative size of any of the, of the of data. Now, this is very convenient because also I've been able to do it in such a way what we call the sinuses, where it breaks open, all in the water. So, There's no breaks in the continental contours which we have in all of our world maps. So now you see the whole world at once without any visible distortion, without any breaks in the continental contours, which means that we have one world island and one world ocean. This gives me a basic background against which we're going to study resources.
1: His appeal has always been international because he has always been concerned with the entire population of this earth and with the earth as an environment itself. So he traveled all over the world during his lifetime. And he was, I think, just as in demand abroad as he was here as a speaker and and, uh, lecturer and luminary. Today, he still is one of the few people that can be looked to as sort of a grandfather of some of the ideas that everyone around the world is becoming more and more concerned with. The whole notion of global warming and climate control and the environment and and thinking about us as one closed system. The earth is a closed system in which we all sort of flourish or we all sort of perish is something that everyone around the world is paying more attention to. And Fuller was one of the first people to think along those lines and speak very courageously about, about those issues. I don't think that there are really that many people since his death who have been able to sort of take up the mantle in in the same way.
4: A few months before Bucky passed on in 1983 and I was actually living with him, at that time he had a house in Southern California as well as his office in Philadelphia And, and so he would fly in and out of Los Angeles kind of as he orbited around the planet on his many, many speaking engagements. And I remember one day that I took him to the airport, which was about a half-hour drive as he was heading off. And I was driving, and he was in the passenger seat. And as soon as we got off on the road, he said, Jamie, what's the most important thing we can be thinking about right now? And it was something that he probably would have said on many occasions, but somehow I remember that one. And I don't really remember what we talked about, but I think what's important about it is that He is really the predominant person that I've known who really lived his life as if every moment counted in terms of the survival of our planet. He really felt that the potentials for humanity were very great, new vistas before us in terms of our capacity to sustain 100% of humanity at a high standard of living, remarkable new potential in that sense, but also very keenly aware of any number of ways that we could destroy ourselves and our civilization. And so he felt that as individuals, the most useful point of view is to realize that everything we do or don't do every minute, you know, it could be the straw that breaks the camel's back or the one that makes a difference in turning the tide
6: for a positive future. A week before he died, I was called to Chicago to the merchandise mart to be photographed with Bucky by Time Magazine for his very last invention, and that was the last time I saw him because after that he went to uh, California because his wife Lady Anne was very very sick, and he went there and a week later he passed away, and most people do know the story, so it's such a beautiful story about their relationship. And that is that Bucky uh, went there, but Lady Anne, we called her Lady Anne because she was such a lady, just absolutely just a wonderful, wonderful, loving uh, lady to all of us, that she had gone into a coma because of her tumor. And so uh, Shirley Sharkey uh, got him a room down the hall so he could be near her and very tenderly. And so he died of a massive heart attack. And so he died, and she, of course, had not died, so he had no idea. Thirty-six hours later, she died, so they died 36 hours of each other. She not knowing that he died, and he not knowing that she died. So what could be more beautiful?
3: People say to me, I wonder what it would be like to be on a spaceship. And I say to you, you don't really realize what you're doing. Because everybody is an astronaut. i live aboard a beautiful little spaceship called Earth.
0: We'd like to thank the Buckminster Fuller Institute for their archival audio and video used in this project. And thank you for listening. Did you know you can subscribe to Science and the City podcasts on iTunes and get our newest story every week downloaded automatically to your iTunes library? Search Science and the City in your iTunes search bar. Have questions or comments about the show? We'd love your feedback. Send us an email to scienceandthecity at nyas.org. Leave a voicemail at 212-298-8654 or send us a letter snail mail to Science and the City, care of the New York Academy of Sciences, 7 World Trade Centre, on the 40th floor. New York, New York, 10007. For more information on the intersection of science and culture in New York City, log on to scienceandthecity.org. See you next week!